Hello and welcome. Today, I have hijacked my co-host Tracy Dix to talk about academic tribes and territories, which I find to be a very useful way of understanding the idea of academic disciplines, so subject areas of knowledge. So this draws very much from the work of Betcher and Trowler, 2001. So these guys did a lot of research into this. Mm -hmm. They started off in, I think, 1989, something like that, with the first edition. And that was based on research from interviewing people at universities in the UK and in America and looking at particular disciplines and thinking about how they actually work as kind of mini cultures so small groups of people and how they interact okay um so was, go on at this point i'm i feel like asking that surely there must be a new term other than tribes are we are we not supposed to be describing things or you know academia in terms of tribes anymore you are that... very correct okay. um so i think it was either the second edition or the third edition of this book because it was very popular this actually said you know, whoa, 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 this is very colonialist, you know, <laughs> what are we doing calling people tribes? Um, because that's what anthropologists used to do when they would go in and observe a group of people and say, oh, this primitive culture does such and such. And in a but way... I've got a question about that. So, but what do tribes call themselves? Exactly, exactly. Do they call um, themselves tribes? Because they if they don't, do they? Oh, they're, I guess not. They're like a village, they're people, a family, a community. Um, tribes is probably a very Western type label that we apply, or well, not us personally, but that culturally, um, Europe, and I acknowledge Tracy is not from Europe at this point, <laughs> <laughs> so I can't label you in this one, <laughs> um, that you know, is quite happily bandied about and it, it's labelled on people. But so uh, Betcher died, I think, in around 2000, maybe. And so Trowler carried on the work on this. And later on, he did acknowledge that um, there are issues talking about the idea of tribes. Mm. What are Trowler's conclusions on this issue of tribes? That's that's complex, actually. I'm it's, guessing it's ever evolved. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That that's a simple way of putting it. Yeah. That's kind of what he says. <laughs> as society, as civilizations progress, terminology changes as well. It evolves, yep, yep. hopefully, for the better. Yeah. Things are actually quite fluid, and mm. when we're talking about academic tribes. Um, the same thing is true. It's very fluid. And as higher education has changed in the UK and America, we've had development of lots of kind of like interdisciplinary stuff. Yeah. So it has changed. Intersectionality is another kind of term that's used yeah, in relation yeah. to interdisciplinary. So I suppose, does that mean that the concepts of tribes is being challenged in a way because uh, how are tribes intersectional or in interdisciplinary? Well, you see, I think that is the value of this research because it mm -hmm. challenges us to think about it, um, a discipline, not as a subject, not as in a textbook or, you know, a canon of knowledge necessarily, but also the culture in the community of researchers. 
What's a canon of research, Alex? <laughs> I don't actually know, Tracy. That is the problem. No, I think that I think that is the approved body of knowledge. You know, mm-hmm. so if you're talking about biology, you've got Darwin. Yeah, where does the term actually? Where does the term canon come from? I don't know. It sounds violent. I don't know. It's not. It's canon with one n, one n in the middle, not two. Sounds um, religious to me. Yeah, canonical. I don't know. Well, this is this is a prime example of how terms get banded around without that much thought given to the origin. Mm. And it's something that does happen a lot in academic communities because I wrote an email about it to our mailing list. So if anyone's interested in our random mullings, intellectually or less intellectually i try to make them as helpful as i can do subscribe to our mailing list yes i had somebody um a colleague ask me the other day what did servicing mean so i said you know oh um program review processes um are very helpful in surfacing the number of assessments and the types of assessments for certain numbers of credits and she was like what what does surfacing mean I've never heard that as a verb. It brings it to light. It's like someone coming to the surface. Swimming. So you, yeah. yeah. So you know you're submerged, and it brings it to light. So it comes into view to something that can be acknowledged from yeah. the deep dark yeah. sea. So it makes sense to us, but that's because we've heard it a lot in our past team. Well, and also I'm an English graduate, <laughs> and you're just awesome at interpreting. Um, <laughs> verbs <laughs> well um <laughs> i guess i have an expansive relationship with language yes. yeah 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 to be fair the first thing i said well it means coming to the surface <laughs> well that, that it, yeah i mean that's literally what, yeah so i was a little more figurative about it i i then gave you know examples mm. oh language it's a fun thing how did they respond to that they didn't. Oh, they probably you, like blocked my emails at this point. You stunned them with your intellectual <laughs> musings, Alex. Yes. Okay, so academic tribes and territories. So does it imply that tribes belong within separate territories or are ah. the two terms fluid? No, I don't think they are fluid. I will explain that in a moment. But I guess what I want to ask now, not necessarily for you to answer, because, you know, that's putting you somewhat on the spot. But <laughs> you like why, doing that. <laughs> I, I love it. Why is this important? You know, why should us as people involved in teaching and listeners as students care about this whole theoretical nonsense if you will about academic tribes and territories Mm. so I can answer that because I have pondered on this many times but you can come in as well don't worry okay so (laughs) so why should anyone care about this I I do have amusing about it which is that people can get very you know to talk about this very kind of informally people can get quite wrapped up in their in their disciplines Mm-hmm. You know, to the point where, okay, just to give an example, because I work in academic libraries, there are a lot of debates over what to call the thing that librarians teach. And uh, prevailing thinking is its information literacy, which I guess, you know, it makes it does make a lot of sense if you're familiar with things like financial literacy 
and in our area of learning development, assessment literacy. But I think in reality, most academics and students don't actually think about those terms very much. So if you just, you know, if you go to a presentation and throw them information literacy or assessment literacy, you've just put two words together that aren't usually associated with each other. And so I think to them, they just go, oh, it was a term. And it's almost like our brain, if it's something that's not familiar, our brain blocks it out and we kind of move on to find the relatable stuff. I mean, maybe I'm oversimplifying things a little bit and maybe academics and students are far more intelligent and intellectual and receptive to new terminology than we give them credit for. But for example, you know, if I come across a journal article that's in a discipline I'm not familiar with and I see terminology, I do kind of glaze over it. Now, it's a bit different when I'm helping students. So if I'm if I'm supporting students with their assignment, then, you know, we go online and look it up. I mean, most of the time I'd ask a student, like, so what does this theory or what does this thing mean? And, and if they can't tell me, then we look it up. But I just Google it and find a definition that resonates and then just yeah. kind of interpret and run with that. Yeah. Well, how many times have we been in meetings where people have just thrown out these complex terms and everyone in the meeting has sat there nodding away and not actually understood what they were on about? Uh, most of the meetings I attend. Most of the meetings. <laughs> it happens way too much. <laughs> it, yeah, it happens way too much. And I, I think people do need to be courageous and ask the question. They do. Like they someone do. needs to step up. And, you know, surprisingly, it's a very difficult thing to do. It's just saying, what do you mean by X? What do you mean really by academic choice? Well, you have cause... to have the courage. You have to put yourself out there. But actually, it's a very simple question to say, what do you mean by X? Well, Alex, you are the master or mistress. Yes, but I had to learn how to do that. I didn't do that previously. So you are acknowledging that it is a difficult thing to do. Yes, yes. But now I have learned that actually it's very simple and it's, you know, it doesn't indicate my lack of intelligence. If anything, Um, it, (laughs) it might mean I'm more intelligent because I've said, hang on a minute. Can you explain that? I don't quite get what you mean. Um, I think so. Well, especially when you realize that the person who was using the term needs to think quite hard about doesn't know what it means. What... Yeah. Well, I think I think perhaps not that they don't know what it means, but they haven't reflected on it enough to explain it. You know, for <clears> example, like <throat> when you're saying about surfacing, you probably had to pause for a moment to think, oh, what does surfacing mean? Because yeah, when you use yeah. something a lot, perhaps you don't you don't break it down to think about how to explain yeah. it. It's almost like you know, with with terms or concepts that we take for granted, and say a four year old asks a question like, "What is? Can you explain it to a four year old?" It's kind of in a different league, isn't it? Like, how would you break down something that we know on a day to day basis to to a little one who has but... no conception of all that? If you can do that, that means you truly understand the definition. I would agree with you. That yes. is the ultimate challenge. If you can, so um, allegedly there's a quote about Einstein that says, you know, if you can explain the subject to um, your grandmother, then it shows you understand it. 
that may not be from Einstein, really. I don't know. You know, about misattribution of quotes. Anyway, shall we get back to academic tribes and territories? Yes, I can't so, quite remember now where we left off before I interrupted you. <laughs> so my question, which I will answer myself, obviously, is, you know, why should anyone care about this idea? Mm. Well, it helps you understand how a discipline and a subject at a university works. And if you understand the nuances of almost political power, um, hierarchy, the different knowledge that's prioritised, the different methodologies that are preferred, then it means you can adapt to that culture better. You can become part of it. You can become a member of that culture, that community. But perhaps you can also challenge it. Yes, yes. And bring in perspectives from the outside to broaden, you know, the the research field. Yes, yes. Okay, so can we get into the research, the theory of this? What I'm showing Tracy at the moment, and we may upload this as a separate photo, is a map of Staffordshire. Now, that's where I grew up. So I lived in Stafford, a little village just outside of. So the idea is um, that... The territory is the territory of academic knowledge. It's the discipline. So if we're thinking about biological sciences, it might be evolution. It might be biochemistry, DNA, proteins, all sorts of different areas, anatomy, physiology. And all of those are different areas within this territory. Now, the strange thing is we also have groups of people living within this territory. So if you will, these are research groups or lab groups that are focusing on specific uh, topic areas within this wider discipline. So it might be a group over here is looking at genetics, a group over here is looking at photosynthesis, those types of things. Mm -hmm. And if we were to use this metaphor a bit further, you know, so let's think about the different areas of Staffordshire and what that tells us. So in Stoke-on-Trent, we have a group of people who focus very much on an industry around pottery. Mm -hmm. So they have certain knowledge around how to do that pottery, create it, um, certain methods. Um, there'll be people who are like key players, really awesome. What would be the word for that? Potters. Potters. <laughs> I think it is, yeah. <laughs> you think that's where pottering around comes from? It could be, could be. And those people, you know, depending on the point in history, will attract funding or not. They'll have importance in society or not, etc. And then if we skip down to somewhere like Canuck, so Canuck, a known kind of like coal mining town. Mm. So obviously they had a very different focus. They had different methodologies. They had different hierarchies, different people in charge, different things that were important to them. And the languages probably varied between the two. So in Stoke, they'd be using lots of terms around, like pottering around, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas in a coal mining industry, um, it would probably be quite different. I'm not well, sure exactly what, but... <laughs> I've got two comments to make here. I think we do need to upload your map, actually, just so that our listeners can see what, you know, the areas that we're referring to. <laughs> the question i'm just being annoying here but i wonder what kind of language people in stone would have used 
But also, okay, so on a slightly more intellectual level, I'm not being completely frivolous. Since you're talking about pottery, isn't Stafford known for, or is it the wider kind of Staffordshire? Staffordshire, it's particularly Stoke-on-Trent and areas around Derby. Okay. What about Leek? (laughs) Not sure about Leek. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and i'm not that good with geography i should probably tell you that at this point <laughs> well you see <laughs> I'm, i've gone up on one now i would also like to know whether there was a kind of history of roller coasters in alton or whether someone just decided that alton would be a good place for a theme park and put one there and i think them. i have a vague idea I think um, it was a big stately home with large estates around it um, and it fell into disrepair and a company bought it, maybe even a community company, with the Mm. idea of making it into a leisure attraction. So they started off with small numbers of rides and that progressed and it became, you know, an enormous place and then part of the Merlin group and yeah, quite fancy. So, uh, was any of the stately home kind of integrated into Alton Towers? It is, yeah, yeah. It's still exactly there. Alton Towers, literally. That's what it's called. Oh, okay. And there's a ride within Alton Towers. Our listeners may know of this. And it's, um, well, or it used to be, and it was called Hex. And so Mm. you went in and... You know, you had all this horror story kind of thing setting you up, an oak tree that was chained up because each time a branch fell off the oak tree, a member of the Towers family passed away. And so then you go into this room and you sit on this, it's called a Newton's Cradle. So a bunch of seats at one side, a bunch of seats at the other, and it rocks. But whilst it's rocking, the room around you rotates. Oh, that that, sounds very disorienting. So that confusing disorientation makes it feel like you're actually going upside down and the swing is taking you all the way around. Mm. It is very disorientating. It's very cool. Incidentally, um, just in case anyone doesn't follow us on social media, you probably, if you do, uh, you've probably realised by now that Alex is quite into your horror. You like your horror, don't you? I do. Just watched a film called Invitation. That was very good. Oh, I won't ask you about it. Now, I really do not like horror. <laughs> Fair enough. Don't go anywhere near it. But yeah. Fair enough. Let me tell you a story. Okay. <clears throat> not really. <laughs> ghost story. Oh, I don't okay, want a ghost okay. story. No, let, let's go into the story of academic tribes. So again, okay. we're using this as a metaphor for... Uh, kind of almost research communities that are focusing on different areas of knowledge Mm. and so you know how the world the earth we've got tectonic plate movements things change over time yeah the geographical positions of things move and you get you know landslides canyons forming all sorts of things so we also see changes like that happening within academic subject areas So we have boundaries of disciplinary knowledge changing. Mm. So some areas become more important, some areas become less important, and we stop caring. Can we think of an example? I can think of an example. Go on. So uh, at the time I was working on my PhD, which was on the banquet course in Renaissance drama, 
I know it's pretty obscure. The whole idea of kind of the history of food was, you know, particularly as relating to Renaissance drama was still a relatively new area. This was, I mean, like in 2008, I think. So it's quite a long time ago now. Um, and since then, there has been a lot more that's been published on it. But I think when it, when it actually came to kind of studies of banquets in Renaissance theatre, there was one published book on it when I started my research. And before then, I think, you know, insofar as people were interested in the kind of more everyday practices that went on in history, it, you know, they kind of looked at, say, family life, and that's about as far as it went. And it all kind of started with, I suppose, the male-dominated arena, you know, mm. of politics and economics. And yeah, and like particularly within Shakespeare, it all, it's all about the kind of great political speeches and how power is construed and created, say. And there was much less interest. You know, I, I guess the references to food were just sort of brushed off and considered very mundane, mm. which, you know, it isn't to to us with our lens because culturally we're very different you know and what would have been considered kind of easily available ingredients for example and what was exotic has changed a lot over time so mm -hmm. like you know potatoes are very you know we Ooh. just take them for granted now it's a staple yeah yeah but it wasn't back then the staple was bread yeah what about oysters <laughs> now i I studied all this a very long time ago. So there have been periods in history where oysters have were very cheap and very popular. I think right up to Victorian time, so fairly recently. And I, I don't know what's caused it to, you know, become a bit more of a rarity. I think also just from, I think on a trip to Cornwall once, you know, they were talking about whelk. How do you, Welks. whelk har harvesting? I don't know yeah, what the term work. is. Yeah, well, harvesting and apparently a lot of it. So perhaps it could be due to globalization because I think most of the whelks that are harvested in waters around the British Isles are exported to Korea. Really? Yeah. And, you know, presumably because there's money in it, they export it rather than sell it cheap within Britain because people don't really value whelks here that much. No. A bit of no. a kind of seaside novelty. Yeah. Um, the irony about oysters is, of course, that those are a prized item. You know, you're talking about two quid an oyster. Yeah, but are, the they as, are they as prized in the UK as they, they are as elsewhere? Oh, but only limitedly. You know, so I wonder if... Valentine's Day and similar <laughs> events like that. Because you, most people nowadays don't know what to do with an oyster. You just eat it raw. You slurp it out of the I, shell I, I and it's amazing. Mine. I cooked mine. <laughs> um, I'm not so, mad. I don't want to die. <laughs> so I wonder. I wonder whether oysters are perhaps exported. So here's another example. Um, Welsh lamb is world renowned, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like Wales is really famous for its lamb, and uh, so this is purely my personal observation. Don't quote me on it. But when we've been to Wales think you know and you kind of you go to a nice restaurant or a pub and you order welsh lamb i didn't actually think it was that great and i sort of feel like now i'm going to have people kind of hunting me down for possibly, saying that possibly we might have to edit this bit out 
but <laughs> I mean, it's it's a matter of personal taste, isn't it? It and, is. Okay, it's perhaps I'm just a fool for not enjoying Welsh lamb, but it just made me think that you know, if Welsh lamb is incredibly popular and there's money in it, perhaps the best cuts or the you know the best quality yeah, yeah. meat is exported, yeah. and yeah. so you don't actually yeah. find that much of it in Wales. Yeah, they say that about France and wine. Not that the best stuff is exported, but the rubbish stuff is exported to the UK. <laughs> well, that's very interesting because that's almost like the opposite of it what is, I described. It but it's that kind of, you know, uh, preferential division of uh, trade, I guess. Anyway, <laughs> let's get back to <laughs> what I was saying. Let's get back to what I was saying. Well, the other thing, actually, just one more thing. Just um, one more. Just one more, Yeah. Well, the thing is, the French do spend a lot more money on food, don't they, than the British? Yeah, I think food in France and Spain is generally more expensive. That's my, but also my more, personal experience. More kind of price. Like, you know, people really care about their food and the quality of it, and they're willing to spend more money on it. Whereas Maybe. I think... I, I think there were, there were some news articles and comparisons. You know, the average Briton, they don't... They don't spend a lot of money on food. No, no. Hence the factory farming of chicken and similar. That kind of thing. So <laughs> um, what are we on now? Dietary tribes. Yes. Let, let's, let's. Or is it a diet tribe? <laughs> <laughs> it's too late for this kind of joke. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay, okay. So we have established that the boundaries of disciplinary knowledge change like tectonic plates and changes in the um, the territory that we're within. One of the important ideas that comes from um, academic tribes and territories is that whatever's going on within our subject area, so the stuff that I'm learning at university, is within a socio-economic and political context. Now, that sounds particularly complex and fancy, and for many years I didn't understand what that meant. But all we're saying is that you have to think about what's going on in society at the time, what's going on in politics in that area at the time. You know, is the government investing in this? Um, are there like different funding objectives going on? You know, what are the economics around this at the same time? How are universities making their money? How are different disciplines making their money? Is money being invested into that? Mm. So it really makes things a lot more complex than, you know, what you would read in a textbook. We have to start to appreciate that society has a big influence on knowledge and our disciplinary areas. I think money also has a big influence money on knowledge. Money is a huge influence, yes. Money talks. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, so um, Fetcher and Trowler were suggesting that these two issues, so the change in boundaries of knowledge and the socio-economic political context that, you know, teaching takes place in, actually causes a change in the practices of disciplines. So how people are doing research, how people are teaching that knowledge is changed by what's going on around it. Now, that's not crazy. You know, we're seeing strikes at the moment, university lecturers, people being pushed out of certain subject areas because management don't think that's an appropriate thing for the university to be studying. Didn't you um, say that, so at the university where we work, didn't you say that 
research into locusts was being defunded or something? Yes, yes. So one example is neurobiology. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's using examples within different animal uh, systems. So using things like owls, locusts, snails, I think were one, bats. Um, <laughs> and thinking about, you know, what do these animals do really, really well that mm. we should look into and then perhaps get a better understanding of how that sensory system works. So in bats, it's echolocation. In owls, it's also, I'm not sure it's echolocation, something similar. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to admit that when you told me that at first, my initial reaction was a bit, oh, okay. You know, I said, well, I don't really see what... sounds nice. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, I, initially I didn't really see what research into you know, locusts had to do with yeah, how yeah. does it improve health outcomes for humanity, yeah. say. Okay. But once you explained to me that because, you know, locusts, what do you call them? They're motosystems or something? Yeah, ba- yeah, basically, how the brain connects to different parts of the locust and how the brain moves the biomechanics of locusts. Yeah. 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 It's a lot simpler. And so it helps us to eliminate... Uh, yeah. you know information I suppose so we it helps us to understand how the biomechanics of humans works so I guess one thing everyone should be aware of is that all the research on how neurons work and how therefore how the nervous system works Mm. pretty much originated from experiments by Hodgkin and Huxley on (laughs) the I know, it's awesome I remember this now. Didn't when I was doing my degree, I have to be honest. On neurons, axons from the giant squid. Wow. And that's how they worked out how uh, impulses, electrical activity, passed along a neuron. And how, you know, synapses kind of worked and um, ion channels worked. And that was the the initial work. Um See? Alex, it's such an interesting friend to have around. <laughs> I know, I know. A hive of information. <laughs> the awful thing is, I did not remember this during my degree. <laughs> but, you know, you've obviously kind of synthesized that It was in there somewhere. <laughs> and you've made it, but you've made it really relatable because with the way you've explained it. Now, if I read your textbook, I would probably glaze over and just switch yeah, off. Yeah, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't see why that matters. But, you know, I guess the point is that um, in... By well, in biology, we use model animals mm. to work out how things work, and then we think, well, okay, how does this apply to humans? What do you mean by model animals? Um, so like I was saying about owls and bats, um, so they are really awesome with their hearing, they use things like uh, echolocation and stuff, right? So we can say, well, they are really good at this, so if we can work out how they do this maybe we can translate that to what's going on in humans. So is that like how that, you know, maybe hearing aids are designed after the like biomechanics of owl hearing or something? Probably not, no, no. (laughs) Okay, never mind. I'll just I'll just go back. I'll just (laughs) Owl hearing is really quite interesting. They have one ear that's higher than the other. Yep. Just fractionally. Um, and the feathers around it help guide sound in, but asymmetrically. And because of that, they can work out exactly the height and the horizontal location of a mouse, for example. And just 
eats it. <laughs> so maybe we need to have our headsets asymmetrical. Like, yeah. Because yeah. also, you know, I've always wondered why why do headsets have like the spongy bit? There's always like some kind of buffer, isn't there? Why is that? Is that based know. on an animal that's got a buffer don't in their ears or something? If you know know the answer to this, please write in and tell us. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Can we go back to my wonderful slide, which will be shared? Okay. Right. So we were saying that things change a lot in how we understand subject areas of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So one of the huge changes has been to higher education since the war so yeah second world war long time ago so we started to see a lot more students going to university it increased you know exponentially initially Mm -hmm. we were talking about groups of you know 20 students that kind of thing and then it was increasing to you know 50 100 um, and now we're in thousands of course yep we also saw more globalization So we're starting to see universities taking students from other countries um, and then being able to charge them extortionate international student rates. But anyway, um, (laughs) but also the sharing of research globally. So that changed things in terms of, you know, labs were both in competition, but they're also sharing information, you know, from different nations. We also started to see uh, something called massification, which I touched on before, which is, you know, the huge increase in numbers of students. Mm-hmm. So that has many benefits, but it also has disadvantages. So benefits are that it makes um, university education more available and economically accessible for students in different areas, you know, poorer students, for example. What um, are the disadvantages? You're probably just about to go to that. <laughs> I was. But disadvantages are, of course, that um, universities were keen to keep a single lecturer on for this huge increase in student numbers. So um, you're not getting that kind of interaction between a lecturer and 10 students, 20 students, where they can, you know, just have a chat about the subject area, pick Mm. up on minor mistakes, give like direct feedback. Instead, courses have to become incredibly structured and interaction is very much regulated. It's through formal feedback and through Mm. personal tutor systems, perhaps. Yes. And I think sometimes the university curriculum is too guided by student feedback you know and sometimes um because the nss carries so much weight i th- i feel like universities are kind of well maybe giving in to students in some ways where they shouldn't necessarily you know for example if students kind of say oh i don't like this i don't like this module or whatever then it gets taken <laughs> this away maths module is really difficult i don't like it well, yeah. So a colleague was recently telling me about, you know, who studied archaeology and why, like, I think a data module had been removed from the curriculum. Mm. And it happened quite some time ago to the point where now there probably isn't even a lecturer who can teach it. Um, and the thing with data is it is something that students tend to panic about. You know, I did once upon a time, I thought a data analyst was a very impressive kind of job role. 
Um, and then I started getting students asking me about, you know, what kind of data they needed to collect for their dissertation. And I thought, well, I better find out what all this is about, you know, being an art student and not ah, well the done. least well done. bit interested in data. So I just did a bit of hunting around and realized well, it just means information, pretty much. You know, but obviously yeah, you're kind yeah. of shaping, you know, thinking about the kind of information that you're collecting or looking for. And making yeah. sure that it's relevant to your to your project. Yeah. But somehow, you know, it's this, I don't know, like Yeti-like figure in the university experience. <laughs> Statistics. Unknown, it's there. Unknown and pretend, pretend it's not there. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, you know, you're seeing how, um, you know, the student body experience and um perception of subjects might influence how they're taught and the direction teaching mm. goes and that may have a knock-on effect in terms of research because like you said you know if people then you know, the lecturers then don't know how to do that kind of data analysis it's going to affect the type of research that's done okay so i have yet two more points <laughs> <laughs> uh, one is a focus on, I, I have coined a term here, vocationalization. <laughs> I think it's going to take off. Um, <laughs> Not Yeah. <laughs> I think <laughs> next time you're allowed to talk about something on the podcast if you can pronounce it. <laughs> I did pronounce it. Vocationalization. I I'm, joking. I'm joking. Actually, I Good. feel, I think this should be a rule in life in general. You're not allowed to talk about something if you can't pronounce it. <laughs> what if you pronounce it slowly? <laughs> Surely um, that's okay. Yeah, I guess oh, so. Oh, you're not convinced. Okay, Practice anyway, anyway, what okay. did I mean about it? So that's the idea that as we're seeing um, more of the population of young people going to university, mm -hmm. that was starting to cost the government more money. Yeah. Because originally they were providing grants. Um, so therefore, there's now more interest in what they're doing at university. And so obviously, the, uh, you know, the reigning powers, the government are thinking, well, it has to benefit society. So we want people not to go to study a knowledge Ballet. area or to develop themselves intellectually. They need to come out and do something useful for society. They need to have a vocation. They mm. need to be going into a job. So therefore, we start seeing more focus um, on courses like that. So things like pharmacy, medicine, uh, law, things that directly lead into something that is going to potentially benefit society. I might argue that lawyers don't necessarily. But anyway, that's a personal <laughs> Ooh, contentious. Ooh. <laughs> arse, well, arse. Um, so... I mean, business degrees are very popular, aren't they? They are. And Does that benefit society, though? Well, I don't know, because it depends on who is teaching in the business school, doesn't it? Because, and why do you want to acquire a business degree? Is it because you want to go, eventually go on to run a business? And is the person who's teaching you on your business degree a successful business person, or are they teaching are they you the textbook the stuff? University? Exactly. Yes. yes. Yes, which is interesting. Um, yeah, so at some institutions, there was um, a very strong area of uh, critique of 
different styles of business approach mm-hmm. so um you know how staff are treating work sorry how managers are treating workers how managers are controlling change how they're focused on productivity and all sorts of things like that but really asking you know are they doing it in a way that is beneficial to both the company and the workers you know the employees mm. but what we're seeing uh, more recently is that universities leadership teams at universities are preferring not to offer this kind of critique this kind of you know questioning uh, course which again is interesting because that is a a choice it's like we don't want to uh, challenge this belief about a managerial system that works is that would you say that's something that's happening across the board that you know managers or like basically managers don't want to be challenged I don't know. I don't know. I do know that um, the Betcher and Trowler research back in 2001 was already talking about um, because of this whole financial shift around universities, Mm. um, they were getting it in managerial teams for senior management Mm. who were pulling choices away from academics and saying, no, this is the direction the university needs to go in. Yeah, that's a shame. I, I think to have years ago to have your research field basically invalidated by your institution. That must hurt. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking. I was thinking that. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you were talking about voca- vocationalization yes, and yes. vocalization. No vocationalization, but also vocalization. <laughs> no, because... I wasn't talking about that. <laughs> well, I've decided that you were because okay. you were talking about whether people are able or not to vocalize. Okay, okay. <laughs> I feel like an academic paper coming out of this. Oh no, we've already am... got the headline. <laughs> I am past that. I know you'll probably try and work on me with this, but I am past the stage of wanting to write academic papers. I just like to tell people how to do Crazy. them. Now we know how. It's a piece of cake. Okay. The next slide, we have a bit of a a collage going on here. Uh, So the one picture talks about a bundle of cogs, and we've got regulations, rules, compliance, standards, policies. Uh So as soon as the government gets involved in mass education, they start to ask the question of, well, how do we know all universities are marking students fairly? Uh how, How do we establish that? that quality control so previously that had been down to academics um and the system was that you'd get different academics from another university come in and look at your course and say okay yeah you know you're you're testing people properly properly you're not just giving them degrees for nothing (laughs) but once you get so many more students going to university and the government is funding that as they were in the 90s then you have to start to have kind of evidence and checking on whether standards are fair. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the next diagram, we have somebody saying, do you remember when all we had to worry about was client care? So this is the idea about um, managerialism developing in universities. So at this point, universities are starting to have to think about, well, we need to get students. We need to start bringing in funding because un- government funding for universities was decreasing. Yep. 
So it's all starting to become slowly more and more businesslike. So when you have businesses, you have managers. When you have managers, you have to have things like key performance indicators and evaluations and audits. And there's a whole lot of bureaucracy that comes into Mm it. Um, Whereas in the past, it used to simply be more of a one-to-one interaction. So you're seeing this kind of change. Next slide, please, Tracy. The main kind of um, argument here is that, you know, universities and degrees don't exist just as a subject thing. You, you're not actually just there studying the pure subject. You're being for curiosity's sake as well. Yeah. It's not, yeah. you know, it's just not, it's not for the love of knowledge or for the love of learning. You know, the, yeah. stakes, are, the stakes are high for students, aren't they, nowadays? Because oh, hugely. <laughs> They come and they want to know the right way to get a first for their assessment or get a two one or whatever it is that they're aiming for. And, you know, you can't really just say, try this and tell them to go, you know, they want the what is going to guarantee me that result. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, and the very, very, very sad thing is that um, a bit like A-levels, maybe students are being expected to reproduce what they're being taught, and mm. maybe that's only part of the knowledge, because the discipline has decided, you know, or been forced to decide that, actually, we can't look at this stuff because that's a bit controversial. No one will pay us to do that. Mm. We have to focus on this stuff, which is, you know, equal ground in the middle, you know. It's not or, um or there's a there's more research funding in that area. Exactly, exactly. To put it cynically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also, you know, I think universities in some ways are becoming risk averse when it comes to knowledge. And yeah. how do you create new knowledge if you don't take risks? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, we're, it kind of feels like the danger is that um, we will universities will just end up repeating whatever the government feels is the appropriate knowledge whichever government that is at the time Mm. you know and that that doesn't progress anything well do you think it's just the government that has a say in what universities teach because i think students play a a large part and you know the nss survey yeah has a large part to play in that that relationship between marketing and what courses students find attractive Mhm. It's all a lie. Tracy, <laughs> rein it in. <laughs> oh no, no! I think the message is it's all actually really messy and really complicated. Yes, it um, is. It pays to be aware that you know your subject area. You know, it might be maths, which mathematicians often claim is a pure hard subject that is not influenced by politics and other stuff in reality it is influenced by all those things it's messy and it comes from the society that it's set within Mm -hmm. so stuff going on like funding cuts to certain areas um interests in other areas business what's going to promote wealth stuff like that that is all going to impact how the discipline how maths develops mm-hmm. and so we should know that we should know that i do have aspirations to well actually get some of my colleagues we've got maths advisors to teach me maths their way because 
you know, it's not something that's ever really resonated for me, but I do believe that with the right approach, you know, anyone can appreciate maths. Don't you worry. When your you... kids get to learn maths at school, they'll be dragging you in for lessons. Um, and then you'll sit there and go, dear God, what on earth does this mean? I never did maths like this. What's what, well, I look at some of the primary school maths that my son is doing at the moment, and I don't understand the methods. No, no, I don't. They don't seem logical to me. I'm not, you know, anyway. <laughs> Things change over time. They do. Yeah, they so do. how you how you do division can change over time. Because I learned long division, but that's not what he's doing at the moment in school. No, no, do all sorts. So you know what was weird? So I was looking for some nice images to create this slide purely for you, Tracy, because right, I wanted to you. be able to talk through this stuff a little bit. Um, <laughs> and I think I looked for... Um, staff working conditions and I ended up with a picture of you know the university I work for with me in it oh. like omg that's me <laughs> being very high profile there with your protests not really <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was there I was very surprised that I came up that was in the top 10 oh yeah that's you look very cozy and of course, one of the other consequences, as many of our listeners will be aware of, is that they now pay enormous tuition fees. Yeah. So, I mean, this was way before my time, but wasn't it the case once upon a time? It was you free. hear of yeah, and you hear of people who were like serial students; they just do degree after degree after. Really? Degree. Oh, I didn't know you could I, do that. I've heard of that. I don't know if it's true, but I assume it is. So, nineteen ninety-seven, people got grants for their degrees. 1998, I went to university. I think I got a part grant and part tuition fees that I had to cover. Mm. Um, and the tuition fees were a thousand pounds. Yeah. And when I heard that, I freaked out. I was like, oh, oh, I can't afford this. But I, you know, I, I need to take a gap year or something and think about what my choices are. Well, anyway. did you take a gap year? Because no. if you did, I think, wasn't that when the tuition fees then increased to £3,000? very quickly, yes. So you did not want to take that gap year? No, or no. the degree would forever have been out of your reach? Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, they're now, you know, £9,000. And then accommodation on top of that, you know, £50,000. I think that's what I paid as an international student. Yeah, nine thousand. Yeah. It's not that now. I think it's about twenty five. has no sympathy. I have no. Well, no. It's not that I have no sympathy, but you know, I could have. I could have stayed at home. I could have gone back where I came from. No, I'm joking. Um, actually, we shouldn't joke about things like that. <laughs> I could have stayed at home and you can joke about it because you're and acquired. A, okay. Uh, explain we'll Alex. no I mean um you know the whole thing about like you can make jokes about immigration if you're, if you're like, an, an immigrant. immigrant I see we'll delete um, this part we don't have to I think we should we should be real <laughs> we should keep it real okay um <laughs> do I have no sympathy no it's not that but yeah I could have stayed at home and done a degree for a lot less but I didn't and there you go and the interesting thing about this whole immigrant thing is quite often I forget that I am one just because, you know, everyone around me is sort of white. Well, not everyone's white and English, but 
I don't, <laughs> you know, like to my mind, I don't see myself as any different. It's a very strange thing to say, I know, but I just don't. Well, in many ways, you're not any different. No, I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm but just that well adjusted. Yeah, you know, <laughs> because ev everyone has their unique backgrounds that they come from. Indeed. And sometimes it's good to acknowledge that, and sometimes it isn't, maybe. No, yeah, sometimes we just want to get on with things, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, complex. Indeed. As the world is, that is my answer to everything at the moment. Well, I would agree it is complex because, you know, even when it comes to issues of like background and things, some people will say they want to be seen and some people don't. Mm. Not not everyone is the same, mm. you yeah. know, in, yeah. in that regard, in terms of their perspective. Yeah. So all this like EDI, equality, diversity and inclusion stuff that's going on, that's why there isn't, there, there aren't any kind of hard and fast rules as to what we should do mm. because you're still going to you know you're going to please some people and offend some people yeah that's yeah. just life isn't yeah. it yeah so have you got a takeaway from that what do people do if they offend people i would just apologize and move on job done awesome well and i think if if they persist in being offended then i think it's kind of on them you know they need to think about why they feel so confronted about whatever happened yeah because it's not intentional yeah yeah i think i agree um yeah you know if you've tried as a person to um include people and okay you get it wrong and so you try and learn from that mistake because somebody's pointed it out but you know, if people keep being offended, maybe we well, do sure you're doing the best you can. Yeah, you know? and this might be a social media thing, but I feel as if we are entering an era where people love to be offended. You know, they're just offended by everything these days. And I'm like, so I don't set out to offend anyone. And I try to be as empathetic as I can. And sometimes I'm just like, don't you have better things to worry about than to be offended by whatever yeah. it was? And I think at the end of the day, that's what matters. It's your own opinion of your own behaviours. Mm -hmm. Because I know you would, you know, like you said, you know, you don't want to offend people. I don't want to offend people. Um, It's, it's, a, diff it's a really difficult one. But, yeah. you know, I tell myself I do not want to feel guilty about things. I will be the best person I can be. Yeah. Um, if I make mistakes, fine, apologize, but I'm mm. not going to feel guilty about it. Well, and actually, okay, so we're digressing somewhat, but we the are, whole yes. um, guilt thing, uh, sometimes it's used as a means of control by other it people, is, isn't it? It is, very much, and especially on be, women. Yeah, and it might not be that you've actually offended them, but somehow they want to make you feel obliged to them for whatever reason. Yeah, and I think I think it is very much a means of control, and sometimes like a form of gaslighting. But anyway, yeah. we've digressed too far. <laughs> okay, okay. So we said about um, obviously the political impact on students around tuition fees. Mm -hmm. So you know, you guys are aware that the society you're living in, the context of what's going on, is affecting your education. Veteran mm -hmm. Trowler are talking about the idea of uh, higher education becoming more of a market. 
So universities are investing in advertising. They're trying to get lots of sales, i.e. tuition fees, um, whilst minimizing how much they spend. You know, big profit. Mm. That's what we're after. Yeah. Um, So what this caused is that we start to see a reduction in power of universities. So in the past, they controlled their own little area in the UK. Um, so is that relating to territories? So exactly. coming back to the original. So literal okay. territories in a sense, I guess. Yeah. Um, and we start to see new universities, uh, independent universities being set up, which mm-hmm. are able to try and compete So then we're seeing this kind of rivalry between competitors because they're having to try and attract customers. And of course, this gives customers or students more power. And so then we get this weird kind of relationship between universities and the power they hold, the state who are regulating things and providing a tiny bit of funding. Mm -hmm. But they're also authorizing or saying, you know, this university is good or this university isn't. And the whole kind of market, so this whole kind of advertising and this university is better than this one, um, but this one costs less. That competition. <laughs> that you competition. mean like the league tables? Exactly, exactly. So it becomes a very complicated mess, really. It is a complicated mess. So another way of looking at it is to say, and I think this is called the the three helix concept innovation model or something or other and so the idea is that um, there's an interaction between universities and the government so we've already seen that but also industry Mm -hmm. so universities and industry are sharing ideas and innovations whereas the university and the government are sharing funding and strategic demand. So the government might say, okay, we we don't think you should be looking at arts. We think you should be looking at science, STEM, which I, I believe they do say quite a lot. But also, um, wouldn't you say that industry does provide funding in the form of yes. research grants? It, a little. I'm not sure on the breakdown of that. Yeah. I believe a lot of our grants used to come from the EU, so Brexit mm. really. Yeah, but don't they come there. from? Don't in some case, you know, industry they come from like companies, don't they? Sometimes, yeah, yeah. And then you've got the relationship between industry and the government. So mm-hmm. you know, government taking taxes, but industry applying pressure, saying you know we want graduates in this area. Mm. So do so, they apply pressure on? The government for that, or on universities? Oh, both. Well, I would say government. Oh, I'm, really? Okay, I'm just that's randomly guessing at this point. <laughs> I'm not an expert in this. Yeah, because um, because some university departments have quite strong relationships with industry. Yeah. You know where they get people to come in and do talks, like employability um, yeah. presentations and stuff like that. Yeah, but whether they're funding the, you know, the infrastructure. Mm. it's another question but the takeaway from all of this is that when you study your degree your subject area it is fully embedded within whatever's going on in society at that time and you know historically what's gone on in society um 
and in itself so I really wanted to focus on this at some point but this may have to be another podcast <laughs> um that actually when you look at a department or a discipline it is like a micro society it's it's a small culture mm-hmm. so you have um certain methodologies that people think are great so you know yeah. maybe Bob's lab down the road, down the corridor, is doing some really awesome stuff. But Mohammed's lab over there, just, you know, eh, we're not so sure about that technique. It's a bit new. We'll have to see how it goes. <laughs> and then you're going to have certain resources. You know, university can afford this, but they can't afford this. Yeah. You're going to have certain knowledge, canons of knowledge, I believe. Canons um, of knowledge. <laughs> that are more powerful than others that you know the community believes in and upholds whereas there'll be other maybe slightly more controversial ideas that are just starting to break ground and again with the hierarchies in departments you've got some people who are respected some people who are less respected not Mm -hmm. necessarily based on their research maybe it's based on their personal skills I don't know it could be I think EQ has a lot to say you know Yeah, yeah 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 Or it could be on funding, or it could be on all sorts of things, how long they've been in the department. Yeah. And then language, I think, is another big one. So it's the Mm -hmm. terminology that um, different groups of people use. So if you have the trauma of being a joint honours student, you probably are well aware that terminology is used in one discipline in a very different way as it is used in another one. Mm-hmm. And so you have to understand that and, you know, work out your own route through all of this, which can be quite confusing. So Yeah, especially because the two departments often don't talk to each other. And so Indeed. I've I've certainly heard from students doing joint honours that, you know, sometimes they have timetable clashes because they're given a timetable for one subject and another timetable for the other and nobody is communicated. Yeah, and so yeah. it's it's a logistical nightmare to yeah. have to work things. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure on the student yeah. actually. It's quite unfair. And because one I think subject, if go on. If, you know, I was just going to say, if they're offering the combination as an option, they should look after the students who choose the combination. Yeah, yeah. But one subject will have a different way of writing essays compared mm-hmm. to the other subject, mm-hmm. and and sometimes different referencing styles. So the student has to learn two. Whereas, you know, single honor students only need to learn one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the conclusion of this is really that, you know, you have to be aware that uh, wider society culture has an impact on your subject area, Mm -hmm. but also within your discipline, it is its own mini culture. So you need to pay attention to all the features of a culture in order to be able to kind of fit in Mm -hmm. and succeed. Mm. it's very deep this has been a very deep conversation and I wonder if recording a podcast episode at 10 o'clock in the evening on a Friday night has anything to do with it (laughs) no no this is a very (laughs) deep subject area it's you know (laughs) this is fundamental to understanding study skills they're different in different departments. Well, it's true. Although I would just have said that rather than gone into tribes <laughs> and for territory. An hour and a half about this. No, it has been very interesting. And I think it, it was good to kind of use um, you know, some of the ideas as a kind of framework for this discussion. Okay. Good but stuff. yeah, you've made it very intellectual. Okay, <laughs> we will blow your minds. 
So carry on <laughs> listening. Um, we will have another podcast out in a couple of weeks' time. We will. So What's make sure going? to follow us on social media, subscribe to our mailing list, and we will give you updates on any of our offers um, and courses that we're developing. And new and episodes when we release them. Yep. We look forward to working with you. Thank you and good night. Take care.